0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody today. Uh, we're looking forward to our time together with you uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 21. Uh, it is a uh, a little bit of a head-scratcher, kind of a, uh, man, this is a hard story. Uh, We've We've encountered some hard stories in David's life, but this is hard in a different sort of way, and uh, hopefully we're going to be able to pull out some really good things uh, as we share together. But I thought it would be good uh, as we continue our journey towards Easter uh, to to find ourselves this morning as we uh, open in prayer in Psalm 27, the Psalm of David, and uh, let's uh, pray together. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident one thing one thing I asked from the Lord this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple for in the day of trouble He will keep me safe in His dwelling He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at his sacred tent. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you seek his face, your face, Lord. We will seek. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Well, one of the frustrations in my life are those spineless college professors that teach freshman world history or freshman uh, Western Civ. And so they'll get young, impressionable students in their class college for the first time, many raised in the church, and they just pound these kids that the Bible is not history. The Bible is made up moral stories. People wrote it long after the events happened. And it makes my head explode, not only as a Christian, but just as a historian like we're going to read today, if you were making up stories, if you were just telling moral fairy tales, you would not include chapter 21. Chapter 21 is proof that this comes from the early Iron Age. Proof that it comes from a set of cultural beliefs from a people that are very different than us. So, like Steve said, it's going to be hard but we do believe that this is the Word of God. And one of the things that I really appreciate about working with Steve is we're both on the same page. God's Word is God's Word. You don't get to edit it. You don't get to say, I like this chapter. I skipped this chapter. Uh, if, if it is what it is, then we have to take it seriously. But there are lots of challenges. And today you're going to see that the, the people in Israel, specifically the tribes, they are, they're people like us, but they're not exactly like us. They are raised in a different culture, have a different understanding, and God is very much at work trying to change a lot of that. But they were not perfect Christians, any more than we are perfect Christians. Um, in fact, to call them Christians at this point would, would just be a, a, a mistake. <laughs> they, uh, they have the way they would look at the world, and God is loving them the way they are. But it's, it's a challenge. So just to get us in the right frame of mind, I want to show you a video that I've, uh, I've been meaning to show you for a while. So we've talked a lot about donkeys and uh, uh, what Israel is like. So let, let me show you a really cool Israeli uh, riding his donkey in the Negev. This is in the south. Negev just means south. So uh, this is kind of the people we're dealing with. How cool is this dude, right? His feet are almost on the ground. <laughs> and have you ever gotten a donkey to do that before, Kenny? You ever ridden a donkey? <laughs> I don't know. Because <laughs> you're from Snyder. That's what they do at Snyder, right?
2: Is Carl Kenny the rider or the? And. Yeah, well,
1: how do you think you motivate
2: uh,
1: <laughs> Pedro there? And all in sandals. And the funny thing about this, Israeli, this is a bus driving next to him. He knows that bus is there. And he's just like, sportin' cool here, buddy. He's look at you. No, he's like, gonna... And so it, this is really kind of a perfect breakdown. In Israel, there are really two, I think, types of people. There are the people who live in Tel Aviv. That are basically New Yorkers, and they just fly from New York to Tel Aviv and they never notice the difference and then there 's the rest of the Israelis that are out up north and the south and the west, making the country work i mean they're they 're very texan like I mean you can tell that guy would be okay in the oil field right he, he and still wearing sandals still still being fine. Pff, not a problem um, you don 't mess with them and uh, but they 're once you make friends with them, they're, they're fantastic. So they're like us, but they're, they're also very different uh, from us. But you saw a little bit of the train there. Um, it, it makes West Texas look green, doesn't it? And that's a little hard to do. There's not many places. Um, there's not even mesquite out in the, the far Negev down there. I mean, it's, it's dirt and dirt. <laughs> So, let's, let's start and see how far we can get. Chapter 21. There was a famine during David's reign that lasted for three years. So this is a crisis time. Israel is all dry land farming. They have some wells. They have the Jordan River. But they can't get water out of the Jordan River. It's too deep. And so for terms of Uh, Agriculture, it's no use. The wells are not large enough. The springs are not large enough to do crops. So unless they have rain, it's not the promised land anymore. And you really have this kind of guarantee from God. um, If you do what you're supposed to, I'll send the rains, and I'll send them at the right time. And if you have any farming background, you appreciate how important that is. It's not just getting rain. You've got to get it at the right time in the seasons. So it turns into a big kitty litter box without rain. In the past, when we've had prolonged famines, Israel has freaked out. They've left. They went to Egypt. They go crazy uh, because without the rain, they have nothing. So three years... Is that getting serious? Yes. You probably have enough seed from the previous year that you can make one bad harvest. But you're getting into two and you're getting into three and you're, you're getting in trouble. So how much has David been talking to David? Or how much has God, how much has David been talking to God leading up to this? Not much. Uh, killed my son. Uh, you know, kingdom's gone to just hell in a handbasket. Revolts, problems, mess, eh, nothing. So God just puts a little reminder out there, I think, for David. Um, we we got some issues we, we got to talk about. When, give me a call when you have a chance. This is how God does it. Um, so, is it the first year? Well, let me say, for three years. David asked the Lord about it. How long did it take? Three years. Are you that stubborn? How many years of drought do you, does God need to put you and your country through before you're, you're listening to God? And then we have this exchange. So, think about all that's happened. Absalom, the revolts, David not talking to his kids. The Lord said, the famine has come because Saul and his family are guilty of murdering the Gibeonites. What? (laughs) This is not what we're expecting. And I think the readers would have been like, what? What? Uh, David has lost his only begotten, his Yahid. Uh, This was a big deal. And yet, God is on about the Gibeonites. Who are the Gibeonites? So, a little bit of history. When the Israelites were taking the promised land from the Canaanites. And we'll talk a lot about this today, but the Canaanites are the same people as the Israelites. They're both Semitic people. So they speak the same language, they're the same, you know, general genetics, DNA, all that kind of stuff. But obviously they worship different gods and there's there's a different tribal situation between them. But when Israel comes in, remember they've been in Egypt and how many of them are they when they come out of Egypt? remember yeah it's probably closer to a million Um, they usually only well they only count men so we figure there's at least as many women and then some kids so in an ancient world if a million people start moving anywhere it's a major earthquake and so in the time of joshua Israel isn't particularly accomplished at military tactics. What they do is just mass overcome people. So you're dealing with a population that's maybe in the hundreds of thousands, and Israel invades in a million. So it's, it's terror, the Scriptures say. So as these Israelites come in and they begin to take the territory, they have to fight these city-states. Uh, big walls relatively small populations maybe 2 to 8000 something like that one of the cities says you know what this gig is up. We're changing sides. So they come out and they say to Israel, hey, you can have our city. We'll join you. Whatever you want. Convert, you got it. Circumcision, we'll do it tomorrow. Um, it, it's fine. We're, we're officially turning coat here. We're, we're joining you. And this was kind of an unusual thing for Israel because, well, what did God want Israel ultimately to do? Yeah and win over other people. The thing that we forget is that in the beginning, Israel was a collection of those that volunteered, that chose to be the people of God. It wasn't just a family. classic example is Caleb. Remember the story of Caleb? His name in Hebrew is Chalev, and his name is Dog, because he was a foreigner. He wasn't a native Israelite, but he wanted to join them. And so instead of calling him whatever his name was, they call him, Hey Dog, because that's what Israelites call foreigners. They, they see the dog as the animal of the dump. You know, as you as you have this big traveling, a million people uh, exodus, um, you leave trash behind. You know, when you pick up camp, yeah, you don't bring everything, Just just leave it. And so the dogs would follow them. And they said, that's what a, a, a non-Jew is, a non-Israelite. It's a dog. So that's why they call this guy Caleb. But God says, hey, Caleb is, is my guy. He has faith. He's the one spy that thinks I can deliver the land. So there's always this, this pushback. Um, do we really have to include these Gibeonites? And so this, I'm sure, wasn't even on David's radar about what had happened with these, these people, these Gibeonites.
0: Kurtz did a good job of summarizing that, but if you want to read, a, read about it on your own, it's in Joshua chapter 9. Yeah. That, that's where the, the story of all
1: this kind of plays out. So, anyway, they had joined Israel, and there had been lots of promises that Israel would include them, take care of them, and realize these are Canaanites, so they were not good people. These are ritual prostitutes. People, These are baby sacrificers. This is a rough crew. But they had joined sides. God orders the Canaanites exterminated, except for the ones that changed sides. And this whole city had changed sides. So we jump ahead, um, probably about a century. So King, uh, well, so, and I, I should say, what Saul decided to do was just kill them. Uh, he was worried about what <clears throat> they would continue to be for Israel. That they would be disloyal, and so Saul, in his craziness, decided, "I'm just gonna, I'm gonna wipe him out." So he began to to slaughter them. He didn't get all of them, but he killed a bunch. So King David summoned the Gibeonites. They were not part of Israel, but were all. <clears throat> they were not part of Israel, but were all that was left of the nation of the Amorites. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But Israel had sworn not to kill them, but Saul in his zeal had tried to wipe them out. And David asked him, what can I do to make amends? Tell me so that the Lord will bless my people again. Okay, there's a couple big things going on here. I think this story is much bigger than just the Gibeonites. God is using the same pattern he does with David, that I'm going to tell you a story about a story that's really going to lead to the big issue with you, David. But like uh, when David had uh, messed with Bathsheba, the prophet comes and tells him a story about a man and a lamb. It's not a story about a man and a lamb. It's about David and Bathsheba. Here, I think it's the same kind of thing. David has real problems in his life. But God says, we're just going to start by talking about the Gibeonites. So there was a promise made in God's name that these Gibeonites could become part of the tribe of Israel. That God's message would carry out to them and they would become part of the covenant. But when that got too hard, Israel just turned on them and tried to wipe them out. So God says, I'm not a big fan when you use my name in vain. That you use my name in order to make alliances and treaties and bring people into the the fold and then you turn on them. So I'm not gonna allow this. So how do you make this right? There's been a lot of blood spelled here. Saul's Saul's dead, right? You know, we're gonna dig him up and kill him again? We can't do that again. Hatfield and
0: McCoy, baby.
1: Yeah. This is, uh, and this is where the cultures really, really diverge. Um, We're talking about Will Smith this morning, like everybody. You know, this great cultural thing that we've lived through, the slapping of Chris Rock, right? But think about what would have happened 130 years ago in West Texas if somebody had insulted another man's wife like that. In 1870 Midland, what would have happened? It'd been a killing. You'd have been lucky to be slapped, right? I'd have been shot you dead. So we we can't get too high and mighty and how you know we're we're so civilized. But one of the big things that you have to appreciate about Israel, and we've talked about it, but the culture here is deep. They are a tribal culture. We're not. Americans are not. We 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 tend to be more individual minded and we think of terms of our family, our nation, and ourselves. And that's just the way our culture runs. Now there were a lot of cultures in the ancient Near East that were the same way. Uh, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Syrians are, li- are like that. They're not tribal people. And so you really got to get your brain around what it is for Israel to live in these tribes, to think in these tribes. There's an old uh, Bedouin saying, uh, Arab Bedouins, um, it's me against my brother. Have you heard this? It's my brother and me against my cousin. It's me, my brother, and my cousin against the world. And that's sort of the way that they, they plan it out. What's important to me is not me. It's important to my family, my clan. So I'm most loyal to my immediate clan, the family name, and then I'm loyal to my tribe. So I can kill my brother, but you better never. He's mine to kill. I can pick on my cousin, but you better never. And it's just a very different kind of corporate way of thinking. I don't want you to get a sense that God necessarily approves of this or thinks it's better, but they do think collectively. And if you ever have a chance to travel in the Middle East, you still see this in, in Semitic cultures. Remember, I, I talked about Amorites. Amorite is the word for Westerner. And so this was a mass migration long before the Exodus where people had come out of Babylon and moved west. And that's all Amorite means, is Westerner. So it's a person that had moved west. Abraham was part of this. And these are Semitic people. So today the Jews would be descendants, Arabs would be the descendants of it, and they're still very much this way. Collectively, they think very different. Um, If your daughter gets pregnant, at a wedlock. What do you do? Kill the
2: boyfriend.
1: <laughs> you do kill the boyfriend. Absolutely. It's his fault. Um, again, you take care of your daughter. You. Um, You you sort of just deal with the problem in your family. A tribal culture, the problem is not the daughter getting pregnant. The problem is the shame that has come to the clan. So what do Arab cultures tend to do? Or Semitic cultures? Who do they kill? They kill the daughter. I know this sounds really, really strange to us, um, and I'm not trying to endorse it, but you need to understand when we talk about the tribe of this, the tribe of that, Israel is acting this way. We actually know a tremendous amount about this from an interesting historical source. Let me show you him. Um, This is an Egyptian pharaoh called Akhenaten, and he decided that he would be the best female swimmer for all Ivy League schools. Um, he went nuts. The Egyptians had an absolute rule, a dictator, and the, this guy kind of broke the system. We still don't know all the things that was wrong with this guy. But look at him. This is not how you want your pharaoh to look, right? You got some big hips, boy. There was something really, really wrong with him. He... Uh, he brings the sense of monotheism to Egypt, he will basically say, I'm the only God you're gonna worship. The Egyptians had like 1,500 gods, it was a crisis. Anyway, long story made short, he moves the capital of Egypt to the middle of the desert where there was nothing before. Uh, As soon as his 17 year reign is over, the people decide, forget him, he's a weirdo, we're going back to the old capital. And what they did is just abandon their capital for 17 years, including all of the documents that they had in the capital. So we found the government's library of correspondence between what is Canaan, Israel, and Egypt. And these are the famous Amarna tablets, which is our next one. They're either written in Aramaic or Cuneiform, and they give us Letters back and forth between these Canaanites, these Semites, these Israelites, and uh, Egypt, and you can really see the Egyptians going through the same thing that we are here today. About man, you people are nuts. <laughs> you're you're clanish. Uh, your Hatfields and McCoy. You when they have an argument, it's not you and I go solve it. It's I'm going to kill you and your entire family. Because that's the way the clan works. You've attacked my cousin, so I'm going to attack you forever. Israel has a bad habit of this. Let me take you real quick to Genesis 34. So this is back in the founding fathers of Israel. So Jacob, Israel's uh, daughter, Dinah, had been raped. There had been a Canaanite city. Uh, She'd gone in. Uh, The prince of the city fell in love with her. She said no. He raped her. So it's about ready to be a war. So the people say, the Canaanites say, you know what, we're sorry. We will make this right for your tribe. What we're going to do is join you just like the Gibeonites said. We're going to convert. We will make covenant with your God. We will let you live in our city. We will give you pasture lands. We will marry your daughter. We will make this right. Please, let's not turn this into a war. So chapter 34, uh, verse 24. The, the founders of Israel, the uh, or, or, two of them, Simon and Levi, say, all right, Well, the the, the whole clan agreed to this. If you're going to join our God, we have a part of our covenant. And how do you mark the covenant? Circumcision. And so they told all these grown men, you've got to be circumcised, all of you. You're going to make this right, you're going to be circumcised. Canaanites think, "Uh, I don't know. They're asking a lot. But they do it. So you're getting circumcised as an adult. And this is what happens. So all the men agreed and were circumcised. But three days later, when their wounds were still sore, because that hurts when you're a grown up, you don't just bounce back from that one, baby. Three days later, uh, their wounds were still sore. Two of Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, Took their swords, entered the town without opposition, and slaughtered every man there, including Hamor, which is the king, and Shechem, who is the prince. They rescued Dinah from Shechem's house and returned to their camp. Then all of Jacob's sons plundered the town because their sister had been defiled. They seized all the flocks and herds and donkeys, everything they could lay their hands on, both inside the town and outside the field. They also took all of the women and children and wealth of every kind. This is tribal. You have offended our tribe and I'm going to take a toll not just on the individual that did it but the entire family. This is why God has to teach them an eye for an eye. We think this is so brutal, right? But it's, it's proportional. If you hurt me with an eye, then proportionally I should have an eye back. Because what do they do? you hurt my eye and I kill your family. This is the problem. All right, I know this is a lot of background. Does this sort of make sense? They are different from us. All right, we
0: we tracking? Yeah, and just before we say, you know, this is so different from us, I mean, there are still places in the United States that are like this. <laughs> I mean, there really are. I mean, we, we tease about the Hatfield and McCoys, but, you know, Kurt and I went to, went to school not too far removed from cultures like this. It's true. In, uh, in the Appalachian Mountains and places like that, this is very much uh, a part
1: of their culture today. Uh, so, we, what's the difference between a Scotsman and an Englishman?
2: Killed.
1: <laughs> Killed. But old school Scots, old tribal clan Scots are still this way. I mean, they'll remember the McDonald's betrayed us back in... It, it's, it's very different. So, back to the time of King David. The Gibeonites, these are Semites, they have been... Um, nearly wiped out. So how can you atone for this? This is back in chapter 21, verse 4. Well, money won't do it, the Gibeonites said, and we don't want to see Israelites executed in revenge. So that's good. What can I do then? David asked. Just tell me, and I will do it for you. Then they replied, It was Saul who planned to destroy us to keep us from having any place in Israel. So let seven of Saul's sons or grandsons be handed over to us and we will execute them before the Lord at Gibeon on the mountain of the Lord. What? It's nothing like having a good barbecue, right? I want seven sons and seven grandsons. Sort of a complete number. It's, it's a complete eradication of Saul. And David, who is master of the Psalms here, master of, of turning the other cheek, being a man after God's own heart, says, No, my brothers, let us seek a way to forgive our enemies. Let us find a way to bury the hatchet. What did David say? Sure. 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 Seven? Is that it? (laughs) That's Monday morning for me. Um, All right, the king said, "I will do it." David spared Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. Remember, he was the crippled son that had lived with David. Maybe betrayed David, but David forgave again. But we're not really sure. But so he's still with David. David's like, "Ah, "I'm not going to kill him. I promised Jonathan I wouldn't kill his kids." So Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was Saul's grandson. Because of an oath, David and Jonathan had sworn before the Lord. But he gave them Saul's two sons, Amoni and another Mephibosheth. So remember, the name is actually not Mephibosheth. It's Merib Baal, beloved of the god Baal. And uh, Baal is a terrible god, so the writer of Samuel is replacing the word Baal with Bosheth, which is manure. It's kaka. Um, so it's funny. But anyway, um, whose mother had been Rizpa, daughter of Aya. He also gave them five sons of Saul's daughter, Merav, the wife of Adril, son of Brazili, we've talked about him before, from Mahaloa. Men of Gibeon executed them on the mountain before the Lord. So all of the seven them, all seven of them, died together at the beginning of the barley harvest. Isn't this a great story? This is what I was worried about. You know, uh, the the cultural context. So what do we do with this? Did David do good? Did David do bad? <laughs> so should, should somebody else get to kill several of David's sons for what he did? That's uh, a pretty good question.
0: It, it all, it, you know, it just raises all sorts of questions for me. Another question that I have is like, and you can't read into David's inter-dialog. But is part of David like, good. Because that's seven less people that are a threat to me.
1: David's enemies always conveniently end up getting killed. And he never is at fault. Right. It's amazing. And they always come from this group of people. Yep. Right? It's the strangest thing. The victim or the defendant fell down the stairs three or four times and he was... (laughs) He died.
2: I think it's
0: interesting. Is, it's at the beginning of the barley harvest,
1: and during this terrible drought, famine. <laughs> that's. Yep. Good pondering that. So we're going to run out of time, but let me try to go where I think God was going with this in verse 10. Then Rizpah, the mother of two of the men, spread sackcloth on a rock and stayed there the entire harvest season, three months. She, presented, she prevented the vultures from tearing at their bodies during the day and stopped the animals from eating them at night. So here is this mother that has lost two sons and she goes out there and well, what are they supposed to do with the bodies? yeah they put him in the cave, you put him with the family it's It's close as they have to a you know proper respect we're We're getting in this habit with David's reign that we defame defile the burials. Remember Jonathan was just thrown out in the field. We've been doing this, so no one comes along and properly helps this woman bury um the family, so she's forced to lay out there cover them up. Uh, Israelites also have a, a strong prohibition on touching dead things. It's, it's a sin. It makes you unclean to touch the dead. And so she is, she is going all out to try to protect the remains of her sons so that hopefully they'll turn to bones and she can add them. What did David do for his son? I mean, one, he didn't go and try to save his son's life. He didn't talk to his son. When his son died in a field, Joab buried him under a rock where nobody could find him. Did David go and find the, the bones? This is part of their responsibility. David does not. I think this is God saying, How is it, David, that you have a kingdom now where problems are ignored? And they fester. These Gibeonites should not have been treated this way. You think I don't care about the way people are treated. And you let this get worse and worse and worse. And so now other sons have been lost. And how is it, David, that this mother has more compassion for her child to do this extreme act of mourning, this extreme act of trying to save their memory, than you do. It's, a, I think, a lot bigger than the Gibeonites and the fact that they're still bloodthirsty monsters. I think it's also a lesson in, if we solve these problems, we take seven sons, or two sons and five grandsons, and we put them on a hill and we kill them. When God tries to solve these problems, whose son does he put on a hill? His own. And so they're, they're not who they're supposed to be yet, but they're, they're, they're working on it. God still... So we're going to run long. I will stop. Um, David does wake up and realizes, oof, maybe I've screwed this up. So he will take the bones of these seven and he will actually go find the remains of Jonathan and Saul and bring them all together and give them all a proper burial. So again, it's kind of a shift in direction, I think, hopefully for David, that God's saying... um, don't don't let these problems fester. Don't ever treat anybody's sons like they don't matter, and fix it if you can. Um, David's efforts are half-hearted, but at least he tries. Yeah. <laughs> Does this make any kind of sense, or is it just I don't know? I think the tribes. The same thing, the blood in the water,
0: right? say that again
1: oh absolutely yeah yeah um and you, you you shed my people's blood at your peril i mean i i will give you tenfold what you do to me and god's like yeah let's let's move away from that a little bit can we um it,
0: one of my favorite passages to always
1: go back to to talk about
0: the character of God is when God is talking to Moses at the burning bush and he says I have seen the suffering of my people in Egypt I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and so I have you know the next rest of it I've come down to deliver them it kind of that, that is like the, the nature and character of God that in the face of suffering God intervenes He intervenes on behalf of the Gibeonites here. It's not just the people of Israel he does that for. Now, How this all works out, it's a little bit, like for us especially, it's a little bit hard to stomach because seven people lost their lives, right? Couldn't have God made another way? Well, God's working with people where they are. Uh, certainly, uh, but nonetheless, it does show a
1: compassionate side of God if you're able to look at it carefully. Yeah, that's pretty, Steve brings a good point. It would have shocked them that God cared about the Gibeonites. Uh, who are who they? They're not part of the chosen like us. That's right. So, God has a long memory. And I don't know, can He remind you of stuff you forgot? people you screwed over <laughs> and then left behind. Um, it's, it's good to have a conversation with him. I don't think he wants us to kill anybody, um, but he wants us to do right, um, th- the best to our ability. So, Any other questions? I want make sure that, that word is correct. Right? Uh, so a lot of us think when we're using God's
0: name and thank right? we associate that with using it and, and cursing the name. Right.
1: And what I heard is that if you're using this name to
2: gain advantage from
1: manipulation.: That's right you're still the bank, Yeah. Really, the our, what we were always talk as a kid to, to misuse the name of God in cussing, that's not what they were talking about. It was the thing that uh, the founding fathers did with Dinah. They said, "Hey, if you're going to convert to God, we'll make this promise in God's name." And then they lied. So that turns people away from God because they think it's all a trick. So it's really, you know, doing it in the name of God but lying and manipulating. It's pastors that take advantage of people. It's uh, you know, crazy cults that uh, catch people and and abuse them in the name of the Lord. It's that that he gets very angry at.
0: Because remember, Gene, what what does the name of God represent? Like, what is behind his name? Is his character. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithful. So if you take God's name, and then just like Kurt said, you use tactics that don't represent that character,
1: you are taking God's name in vain when you do that. In the New Testament it's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's the other side of the coin. When you call what God has made good, salvation, evil, um, then you're You're taking the name of the Lord in vain. It makes it so hard for people to follow God if they've met people that defame the name of God. Yeah. Well, let's pray. Father our God, we are humbled. We are reminded. These are not fairy tales or fortune cookies that we study, but real people at a real time. That's different in many ways from what we... We expect today. We give you thanks, O Lord, that we live in a world that has benefited from your word, from your gospel. Even though we forget it so often and we try to run from it, we know it is best for us. That justice in our world is not mass executions, but trying to find the person who did the crime and, if possible, give them a better way or making them alone pay for their crime. Help us, O Lord to be the pillars of Your Word in our society. There are many, many mistakes that we've made. Sins that we've committed, people that we've hurt, and we've just moved on. We think it doesn't matter to You anymore. But it does. So let us this day pledge to do right by Your name. If a person is trying to be a Christian, if a person is trying to get it right, May we be a living example of Your Word for them. May we be Christ for them. Not a person who takes advantage. Not a person who cuts corners or works angles because, quote, we're Christian. But when we speak in Your name, when we take on Your reputation, may we treat it with the most tender, holy, precious attitude that we can so that Your will will be done. The world will be changed, one soul at a time coming to know You. Help us. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.
2: Thank you, gentlemen. Have a good Good day.